Welcome back to Fresh Press for February 25th, 2020. I am Gabe. I think it's weird when you say welcome back. Oh because my Because it's God. not like we were on a break. We were on a break. It just was a week long, Andrew. I know, but when it's like one episode, it's it seems like we just had like a commercial break and now you're welcoming them back. It was a very long commercial break for life. And now we get back to the real good stuff. Fresh Pressed, the podcast. Ugh, I'm Andrew, and this is a show about music where we confess our love for new tunes and old grooves. How about that? I, d- I did it in the different part of it. Oh, I'm so excited. That was so good. Wow. Yeah. Yes, folks. So our theme today is confession. So I want to start off by asking you a question, Andrew. What would you say the difference is between a confession versus a profession? Is this a... No, like a confession of love versus a profession of love. Not like a profession like in this is what I do for a living. Like I install windows or something, you know? <laughs> what a weird pull to, to talk about installing windows. Also, a weird thing for you to say because your profession is like the opposite of installing windows. No, I'd say your profession is the opposite of installing windows. No, I'm opposed to people installing windows right now at this moment. <laughs> okay. Uh, the question still stands, though. Like, if I'm confessing my love to you, how is that different from me professing my love to you, Andrew? Well, if you're confessing, you're fessing with. And if you're professing, you're fessing for? What is pro? Yeah, yeah, pro would be for. But con, I guess, is with. But it also can be against. You know, con and pro are opposites. But are they? Is That's this like the a thing. fat chance and a slim chance? What? You know, like when you have opposite idioms, but they mean the same thing. I think it's more like a, a square rectangle situation. Every confession is a profession, but not every profession is a confession. Oh, okay. I dig it. All right. That works. I said me. that. I, I started that as a joke, but I actually think that's right. No, I think that is right. Because you can profess something that's already known, but to, con- to confess something, you, you're like at least verifying it. Like at least you're, you're admitting it, right? But you can profess something that you've already admitted. But either way, you are expressing your something. something. You're expressing something. I don't know what you're expressing. Oh, well, I mean, it could be anything. That's the whole idea. But there are different connotations for confession and profession as well. I wanted to go into some bit about the differences and confessions between different religions. But honestly, it seemed... Ridiculous now that we've had this long, detailed linguistic analysis, and we should really just get to the music. <laughs> we maybe should. So, Andrew, you want to tell us about your song that has to do with confession? I would love to, Gabe. The song that I have brought is called I'm Confessin' That I Love You, and uh, the version that I'm bringing is performed by Thelonious Monk. disclosure this is a confession right here i'm picking this song for two reasons one it has the word confessin in the title and two i like thelonious monk the song's good i mean it's good but like i'm not picking it for any like actual real content reasons just like i'm picking it because it fits the theme and i want to talk about thelonious monk 
Well, this song is a jazz standard, so you theoretically could have picked I'm Confessing That I Love You, or I think it's known as just Confessin' in some It's song known books. as a variety of, of versions of... It's either I'm Confessing That I Love You or any number of those words individually. So why did you pick Thelonious Monk over... Because other. I love Thelonious Monk. So f- first, I should mention the song. Okay, the song is, is written by Chris Smith, who uh, I believe the, the original title was Looking for Another Sweetie. So that's a cool name. But then someone else wrote better lyrics, I guess. And that's all fine. And it doesn't matter because this the, this version doesn't have any singing in it anyway. So it might as well be called Looking for Another Sweetie. But I'm glad it's not because that means I can use it for this episode because it fits the theme. So Thelonious Monk. Gabe, you know Thelonious Monk. Very much so. His middle name's Sphere. It's an amazing middle name. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing first, middle, and last name. Really crushed it on the name game. Yeah. I don't know what Thelonious Monk's parents' names are, but they should feel proud of themselves. His dad's name was Thelonious. I want to take that back. (laughs) (laughs) And his mom's name was Barbara. Well, she stepped it up at least. But his mom's father's name was sphere all right okay (laughs) he really lucked out then they just chose the best names from all parts of the family like yeah thelonious okay we got sphere over here what was i saying thelonious monk he's a jazz pianist and i think in my personal opinion he is like one of the best jazz pianists no, uh, you were you were gonna go for best jazz pianist, and you backed off on it last second. I did. I, saw I did that. back off. You on were it. like, "Oh, Duke Ellington." <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree that he is one of one of the best jazz pianists. But it would well. Be very I, here's hard. why. Like... Here's why I'm really I'm backing off on it because I think he is. Well, I don't know. I would almost like argue that he's one of the he's like the best jazz musician before I would argue that he's the best jazz pianist. Even though, like, he's incredible at the piano. I think he's just, like, what's incredible about his piano playing is his approach to it and not necessarily his, like, physical fluency, which obviously he is very, like, (laughs) he's materially, like, talented at the piano. But his approach to playing the piano and his, like, particular, like, whatever, his idiosyncrasies are what makes him such an incredible musician. I find this to be true with a lot of great, classical style musicians and jazz musicians that it becomes less about the technical skill very quickly once you get to a certain level and much more about style uh and like you know style over substance in this particular case right um but also the thing that makes a a worthwhile like a worthwhile style hate that the thing that makes a particularly a particular style special is also the conception and substance behind it like if it's if you're just like ah i'm i'm have this gimmick you know it's a difference difference between a style and a gimmick i guess is what i'm trying to say i don't know kiss got pretty far with the painted faces right but this is that's a great example i don't think you would say that kiss is like one of the best rock bands in the world (laughs) no that's fair they're like one of the most famous rock bands definitely uh they're one of the most recognizable rock bands hard not to be but i think what makes Thelonious monk special is something better than gene sim i'm here hot take Thelonious monk is better than gene simmons oh that's, that's scorching and the other members of kiss whose names i don't know nobody knows their names no i feel like i know one of them 
No. Who's the panda one? See, you don't know. <laughs> you can identify them by their painted face, but you don't know their names. Only people know is Gene Simmons because his name is so regular. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to Thelonious Monk. Okay. I want to break this down to three components of his style that I find so compelling, all of which can be illustrated in this song. So the first thing about Thelonious Monk is something that is not particularly unique to Thelonious Monk, but is an important aspect of his style, which is stride piano. I do not know what that means. Stride piano is a jazz style of, for it's, it's about how your left hand moves. The structure of a stride piano bass line or left hand part is just like bass note, chord, bass note, chords, like boom, chim, boom, chim, boom, chim. And like being, doing a big jump between that bass note and that chord, which is very audible here in this, in this piece. And what that does, I mean, I, I don't think that stride piano is like the most incredible thing by itself, but it's a very important style in this era of jazz and Thelonious Monk is a later example of it, but a very important example of it. And I think what it sort of allows you to do is really execute a solo piano piece well, because it gives you a lot of range while having like consistency because you're using your left hand to go all the way down to the bottom of the keyboard for that bass note. And then maybe like up in the middle for that chord, you have this wide range that you're covering, but it's also all in one uh, line, however disjointed that line is, which I think takes up a lot of the like audio space or the pitch space, which lets you like act as a full band kind of thing. Right. The thing about the thing about jazz people is a I'm bad at remembering names in general, and b. Jazz musicians either have the most vanilla names or the most ridiculous names, like Thelonious Monk or another stride pianist is Art Tatum, um, which is a, I feel like that's, I don't know anyone named Art, wait, Art Garfunkel. Yeah, Art isn't that unusual, but Art Tatum is, uh, but also like, you know, Chick Corea. Yeah, but the, the like father of stride piano is named James P. Johnson. Yeah. So that's nothing. But then, like another, like Fats Waller is also a, is a also a stride pianist, right? Okay. Uh, anyway, okay. So that's stride piano. So that's great. That's that's sort of like laying the foundation. That's something that Thelonious Monk inherited from people like James P. Johnson. Then to add to that, another very important aspect of Thelonious Monk's piano playing is the way that he attacks the piano, and that is both a technical term and a and a, a metaphor, I guess. This is the most striking aspect of Thelonious Monk's piano playing, and it's what you notice right off the bat when you're listening to uh, anything by Monk, right? The way he particularly goes for the melody, it sounds like every note is accented. And that the, the stride, too. I mean, when he's doing all that, it's really just like, boom, 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 boom. Like, it's, it's just going for it. Um, and he'll add some, like, some maybe unexpected emphases, like even further emphases at... at spots you might not expect to be emphasized, uh, which really like add, I think, texture and dimension to the music. 
I, there was a, a critic who called him an elephant on the keyboard, and that was not a positive uh, <laughs> assessment of his style. Now, I gather he was fairly critically controversial kind of in his day, although I do not believe that to be the case anymore. He is pretty universally beloved. Yeah, he was a weird dude, and some people didn't like that. But yeah, the way that he attacks things, and that's sort of his approach in general, is this sort of, I don't want to say aggressive, but it's like this kind of quirky, just like, I don't I don't know how to describe it, but you can hear it. I mean, it's that, I, I think that the elephant on the keyboard is a bad explanation of what he sounds like. Because I think if you aren't thinking about the way that he's playing the piano, you can get that sense that he's just sort of like plonking on it randomly. But he's very specific and precise and direct. He's just hitting it hard, which is something that people are not expecting. But going back to uh, what's going to be the underlying theme of this analysis here, the way he does that gives his solo piano music a fullness that you might not otherwise get. Um, because you get that percussive sound of him hitting the piano. If, you, if you're recording it, you can get even like the you know, all of the extraneous sounds, not just the sound of the string reverberating, but like the plunk of the key and like the, the click of the hammers hitting the string. You get all of it. And so it enhances the sound. So that's stride piano. And that's his uh, attack on the keys. The third aspect, which is my favorite aspect of, of Monk's piano playing, is his love for dissonance. And combined with those other two qualities, he expresses that dissonance really uniquely. So where other jazz musicians might like roll a really nice chord that has just a lot of like ninths and elevenths and thirteenths and all that stuff, and you don't have to know any what, any of what that means, what I just said, but just like a bunch of other notes that are not like normally that sound jazzy, basically. They're not normally in the chord. The way that he's attacking the piano and has all these like big spaces in both the stride and in his in his right hand as well in the melody, he'll like just very precisely hit two notes that are like right next to each other. When what he the melody is is one of those two notes, right? But he's also playing the note right next to it, which can sound wrong but it's very intentional and you still hear the correct note, quote unquote, correct note. Um, but you also have this extra layer of that dissonant note with it that again, combined with the whole space that he's taking up on the keyboard and this attack of it, it, it just uh, expands the range of, of his sound that he's making. Um, so he turns this, a simple melody like this song into this just like full experience with that with that dissonance and all those other things. Something that I find very interesting about Monk's solo playing and the way he attacks melodies is that he is playing the piano in the horn tradition of jazz. What he'll do is he'll do a lot of these grace note hits that are very dissonant, or they'll be a half step away leading up to the melody, for instance, like the example you're giving. That is not something people normally do on the piano, but it's very characteristic of, say, somebody playing the trombone, because you have that slide ability to actually 
go up through that half step jump into the next note and whoop, up into it. And he is managing to do that with the piano, which is unusual. And it sounds particularly dissonant in the piano because you don't have those quarter tones between the keys and the piano, right? It's just uh, black key, white key. There's no gray key, you know? Yeah, what you're saying is uh, a piano is a, like, the notes are discrete, as in, like, E-T-E. Like, they, you can't slide from one thing to another unless you have that cool wave keyboard that was, like, going around the internet. Like, I don't know, it was a fucking decade ago. It doesn't matter. But, like, you're either, pl- you're either playing this note or you're playing the next note. Whereas, like, a trombone has a, a literal slide, and you can just slide continuously up through the scale. And that's actually true of pretty much any other non-keyed jazz instrument. Like, trumpets, yes, they play valves, but the way you can adjust the shape of your mouth, your embouchure, you can create that same effect. And that also goes for a guitar by pulling, or by pulling the strings. Uh, he creates an effect, and also... If you look at the way he attacks notes, it sounds like you have that sharp attack like you would on the front of playing a brass instrument. So that's why I say he's kind of in the horn tradition of jazz as opposed to the piano tradition of jazz. Right. But but the way that, I mean, because of the what you can argue as the limitations of the piano, or at the very least the differences between the piano and and a horn, he translates that horn tradition onto or transfers it onto the piano and thereby making it unique like it's not just he's playing the horn but it's a piano sound you know no right like it's it's its own thing because of the way you have to change it and the way that he chooses to change it both of those things absolutely and because of his influence of creating kind of that blend of styles in the 50s and 60s that became more standard in jazz, right? He contributed a large portion of that to the jazz style. So you might hear people playing in Thelonious Monk's style in contemporary jazz music, but they are particularly, they're referencing and drawing from his introductory influence. Um, I will say, I think Thelonious Monk provides a lot of dissonance and you hear it here in his solos and melodies, but the chord line of I'm confessing uh, and this is just how the standard is written, is not particularly dissonant. Thelonious Monk contributed some jazz standards to uh, the repertoire, I guess, of jazz standards, uh, these big fake books. And those l- chord structures that he creates in his songs are extremely dissonant chord structures, both the chords themselves and the transitions between the chords which you don't get so much in this song, but is also very characteristic of Monk's writing and composition. Yeah, his, his composition is really, uh, again, goes with that sort of like unorthodox, like disjointed kind of style. That's what I'm saying is that there is, there's sort of a unifying concept, even if it's not like a stated, I don't know of him saying like, ah, yes, I'm intentionally trying to do these specific things to accomplish this goal. But all of those aspects of his playing style jazz is like kind of the whole point of jazz right sure (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
So after that marvelous essay in three parts, I bring to you a contemporary of Thelonious Monk's confession music. Um, this is Confessing the Blues from Chuck Berry's 1960 album, Rockin' at the Hops. Baby, here I stand before you with my heart in my hand. I want you to read it by my hoping that you understand. Well, baby. So Chuck Berry is known as the father of rock and roll. So that's a a low-key title for a musician. <laughs> um, uh, you may be familiar, audience, with some of his music, particularly uh, Johnny B. Good or Roll Over Beethoven. Some quick biographical notes on Chuck Berry. He was born in St. Louis in 1926. He passed away in 2017. And my favorite fun fact about him is that when he was in high school, he hijacked a car at gunpoint. And then got sent to, uh, they called it a reformatory, for three years. During that time, he joined a singing quartet that was so good that the reformatory had them perform outside of basically this detention center. So, extremely talented musician from a very young age. He is not single-handedly, but probably primarily responsible for some of the transition between rhythm and blues music to what we consider rock and roll. And Confessing the Blues, while I think a slightly less well-known song of his is an example of that transitional style, right? 1960 were kind of uh, a stride, well, his career, but also Elvis, and we're still pre-British invasion, at least in the United States. However, for example, the Rolling Stones cover Confessing the Blues on one of their records in 1964, and B.B. King, who is an R&B artist uh covers this in 1969 so this is an influential song um, on both kind of sides of that musical divide so i guess the question is is what makes this song rock and roll rather than rhythm and blues because andrew this clearly has a blues structure uh, at least chordal structure underneath it we're really getting in the weeds with the musical analysis in this one huh that's ah, the good stuff so I think the thing that stands out is the really distinctly picked electric guitar lines where he is soloing over both the verses and then there is a specific musical interlude. And I think the big differentiator in the solos from a rock and roll song and this song compared to, say, Thelonious Monk, who is producing music at literally the same time, is I think the sub simplicity of the solo line and the amount of repetition that is used. song he is playing the same line over and over and over again inside of the solo but like a good rock solo that becomes more exciting the more he plays it whereas that doesn't work as well i think over a jazz structure and you certainly do not hear it quite as much in jazz not to say that it doesn't exist yeah i think that's fair there are um, so that that idea is like the idea of the riff although i wouldn't say that 
Chuck Berry uses what we consider a standard rock and roll riff, well, like Smoke on the Water, for instance. Um, so Chuck Berry isn't just a guitarist, of course. He's also a vocalist. And I particularly like his vocal interpretation of this song, especially when you compare it to like what Mick Jagger does a few years later, where uh, Mick Jagger really slows it down. Chuck Berry provides, uh, I think, a more syncopated rhythm and a more forceful and upbeat uh, singing style that is, I think, engaging. And I enjoy it a little bit more than Mick Jagger, who like cuts the tempo in half with the Rolling Stones for this song. This is my confession, mama, and I'm filled by all your charm. It seems that I'm in heaven when you hold me in your arms. So one thing that's interesting is we can hear the use of electric guitar in this song pre, I would say, the invention of distortion uh, as a musical element. Um, so normally we get accustomed to rock solos having a lot of distortion overlaid on them, but that is really an invention that happens later in the 60s. What do you mean by distortion? I'm sorry, I just want to back up and just uh, explain terms just so we're not so in the weeds for this whole thing. Sure. So distortion is when you play a note on usually an electric guitar and you get intentional feedback from the amplifier system. So that creates kind of a harsh background sound. Yeah, you get a harsher sound. You get there's there's more stuff going on that is not the the note that you're trying to hear. But distortion as a musical style, Andrew, doesn't develop until later in the 60s. Uh, really with Jimi Hendrix. The guitar line that Chuck Berry is playing, and maybe this is what differentiates rock and roll from rock, is uh, much cleaner, right? Normally we would anticipate that solo having some distortion overlay on top. Well, baby, don't you want a man like me? You think Andrew, did you find any good music amongst the releases this past week? Uh, yes, so the song that I have brought is by Thundercat, and the song is called Dragon Ball Do-Rag. Gabe, you know Thundercat. He's the guy with the six-string bass that's so fucking cool. Andrew, I know Thundercat. We can get to me and Thundercat's relationship later, but I want to hear what you have to say about this song first. Wait, why would... Wait, hold on. Now I'm confused. A Thundercat and I Do you have a relationship with Thundercat? Oh. I wish. Ugh. No, I have seen him in concert twice, though. Oh, fuck. Okay. But I do want to hear what you have to say about Dragon Ball Do-Rag first, because it's a hilarious song. I don't know why you think it's hilarious, Gabe. It's very earnest and honest and uh, beautiful, I think. <laughs> I do think that. It's also hilarious. <laughs> All of the above. This is, uh, he, has a, he has an album coming out in April, I believe. So I, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm killing the rest of that album today by picking this song. But that's just how this show works. Nope, so. Now's the time. So this is... Again, such an earnest and simple and in, and beautiful song about uh, his uh, Dragon Ball do-rag. And when I say Dragon Ball, I, I am talking about 
the anime series. Dragon Ball Z. Yes. He has a Dragon Ball tattoo, I think. And he's also a big proponent of the do-rag, is what I've learned from the publicity surrounding the song. He says, I have a Dragon Ball tattoo. It runs everything. There is a saying that Dragon Ball is life. And then he also says, the do-rag is a superpower to turn your swag on. It does something. It changes you. If you have one in the wardrobe, think about wearing it tonight. And it may pop off because you never know what's going to happen. Isn't that such a great metaphor for life? Is it a metaphor for life? It may pop off because you never know what's going to happen. That's just a statement about life. That's not really a metaphor. I mean, the the do-rag is the metaphor. The symbolism. What is the do-rag a symbol of? Life. You may as well put on life because you never... What? Yeah, absolutely. There are two types of people in the world. The guy with the do-rag and the guy who doesn't know what a do-rag is. The guy with life and the guy who doesn't know what life is. I don't... Clearly, I wear the do-rag in this relationship. No, I'm not willing to go that far. This song is about love. And it's about how Thundercat looks in his do-rag. And those are the main things. Um, something that I love about this song is that there's no need for him to title it Dragon Ball Do-Rag because he doesn't mention that it is a Dragon Ball Do-Rag in the song. He references video games and comic books, but he also says a bunch of other stuff. So, like, there's no reason for you to think that that's what is printed on the Do-Rag, that Goku is on his fucking Do-Rag. Is it Goku? I don't know. I guess that's who I would put on my do He doesn't explain it. Where I'd wear a do-rag. I just don't know that would be cultural many characters in Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, there's at least one more. There's Goku. Oh, I'm looking at the album art right now, and it's just, it's literally Dragon Balls. Like, I mean, that's a, that is an object in the show Dragon Ball Z. Um, everybody should look up this album cover also. Um, it is incredible. Uh, <laughs> Federica has the craziest smile on these big square frame glasses, uh, and it says "100% Thundercat" at nine thousand dollars on it. So, <laughs> oh, it's so fucking good. Um, I just want to run through some of my favorite lines of this song, Gabe. I'll say it, and then you can put in the clip of of him singing it. Okay, thank you. I'm a keep on all my chains when I'm making love to you. I'm a keep on all my chains when I'm making love to you. Do you like my new whip? Watch me go zoom zoom. Do you like my new whip? Watch me go zoom zoom. I may be covered in cat hair, but I still smell good. I may be covered in cat hair, but I still smell good, baby. Uh, that line, when I dropped, I laughed out loud. Just like alone in my room, cracking up. I, I want to read this the second to last verse in, in its entirety. You don't have to like my video games or my comic books, but baby girl, how do I look at my do-rag? Did I tie it right? Did you wear that dress just for me? Because I'm trying to smash. Baby girl, I'm smashing my do-rag because it's only right. It's so fucking good. Thundercat is a unique soul, I think, in music. And the world is better because of it. Yeah, something, I mean, uh, something great about Thundercat is obviously he's an incredible bassist and this is a very funky song, but his, like, history, like, he started in, like, fucking, like, punk and thrash bands. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Did you not? No, because yeah. he's, like, a jazz bassist. Yeah, but he's he's also just a fucking badass in general. Granted, granted. 
Yeah, he was originally in the L.A. punk band Suicidal Tendencies. What? Weird. We should also talk about some of the other people that were involved in the making of this song. Because a uh, friend of the pod, Kamasi Washington, uh, is playing the saxophone. And also helped produce this along with, I believe, Flying Lotus. So this is part of like the whole L.A. Brain Feeder crew. I call them yeah. Brain Feeder because that's the name of their label, not because they feed on brains. But, all, I mean, they also do that. But. Honestly, no, I would say Brain Feeder, to me, does not sound like someone who feeds on brains, but someone who feeds brains. Oh, that's such a nice interpretation of it. I mean, do we know? No, we have no idea. What? I haven't looked that up. I'm not going to do that research. I feel like it's they feed your brain. Brain feeder. Mm, it really could go either way, I think. No, I don't think it could. It definitely could. Because feed, you feed on something if you're eating it. Uh, I think brain feeder could be synonymous with zombie. No, I don't think it could be. You know, brain feeder is a kind of zombie that eats brains. No, it's that what what that word means is it's feeding your brain. What you're saying is brain feeder is like bird feeder. Yes, it's exactly. A, it's a brain feeder. It's a bird feeder. All right. That may be the maybe the root of it. It might have just it might be a, a bird feeder joke. <laughs> Could be. Could be. Um. So I wanted to talk about. So I've seen Thundercat live twice. I saw him at Outside Lands in 2017, and then I saw him open for Vampire Weekend last year. Vampire Weekend? That cannot be right. That? No, there's no way that's right. <laughs> what a difference in vibes there. No, it was definitely Anderson Pack. I remember who I saw it with. Okay, scratch all that, not Vampire Weekend. That would be a really terrible choice by Ezra to have Thundercat open for his, his chill indie band. I don't know. There's a look. Steve Lacey does Vampire Weekend stuff, and he also does Thundercat things. So there is that crossover there. But he is phenomenal live. He gets up on stage with this enormous six-string electric bass, and he does things with this. He makes he's like playing it like a guitar to some extent, um, except it's an octave lower and. He is extremely talented jazz bass soloist. So he'll solo for like six or seven minutes at a time, just like noodling on this bass. And it sounds phenomenal and it's so funky and he really grooves. It's really wonderful to watch live. If you have the chance, I really recommend seeing Thundercat. And he's very funny on stage. As you can gather from this song, Thundercat is a humorous man. Just... uh, Knows how to play the crowd, even though he's like pretty much just noodling on stage the whole time. Uh, switching gears, Gabe, what do you have this week? Switching gears a little bit. Um. This would be like Thundercat opening for Vampire Weekend. Sure would. Here we go. Thundercat opening for, this is the band called Wilson. This is their song Fuse off their new record this week, Ruiner. We So here's a confusing thing. 
Yep. Wilson mm-hmm. is fronted by mm-hmm. the London-born vocalist mm-hmm. Tamson Wilson. Yep. Not spelled the same. Nope. Right. So Tamson Wilson spells her name like a normal Wilson, you know, like Will Son. But Wilson the band is W-I-L-S-E-N. I mean, some people do spell it like that, but it is weird that her name is Wilson and her band is Wilson. Yes, thank you for that very slight differentiation in pronunciation, Andrew. <laughs> there are two other members to the band, so maybe that E is in reference to uh, Drew Arndt and Johnny Simon, who played the bass and the guitar. <laughs> Neither of which have an E in their last name? <laughs> nope. Ruiner is their second full-length record. Something cool about this record is they worked with producer Andrew Sarlo, who also does Big Thief's production and produced Boney Bear's newest record that came out last year. This entire record is wonderful, and I recommend it in its entirety. Andrew, I know you really enjoyed the whole record as well. Yeah, I uh, I was glad that you picked something from this because I had like four tracks left on my playlist that I was choosing from, and two of them were from this album. So, And one of them was this song. Great, that narrows things down. I want to point out immediately the aspect of this song that uh, sucked me in there is a vocal line where Tamsin Wilson sings kind of the verse and then she goes up slightly in steps going step one step two it was so kind of unexpected in the context of this like dream poppy song like wow I'm so glad you said before that like, oh, there's this one moment that I want to talk about. I was like, I bet it's that fucking moment, isn't it? I mean, and it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that I love about that, only her voice is adding that additional note, that adding that little half step in there. There's none, nothing in the uh, accompaniment that adds that note. So it's just in her voice. It's part of what makes it so kind of unexpected. Yeah. And then functionally, I think it sets up the chorus that follows right after that line in a way that is not like arguably not like necessary in a song like this but i think sets it apart with just this one little note she like makes you like perk up from being like oh hey and then that like leads you into like down into that like descent into the chorus really well and she does it both times like before the first chorus and before the second chorus and the chorus references Step one, step two, both as like, okay, steps in a process, but also dance steps. And she, uh, the, the line in the chorus is ready to disco, baby. Yeah, which such a good line. Is such a good line. Oh, man. It, it's like so evocative of uh, like a particular era in music while still being uh, almost like ultra contemporary. I also that that step one step two line returns i think in the second chorus the pre-chorus time is before the first chorus and then she has she says step one step two again in the second chorus i think it's in the same spot like functionally but it doesn't it does she doesn't do the same vocal thing with it because it goes into more of like the extended chorus 
But because that was such a notable moment, the first time she sang those words, the second time you hear it, you're like excited again because she's saying it, but in a new way. I don't know. It's so simple the way that I'm explaining it, but I just found it so compelling when I was listening to it. Yeah, those echoes of previous lines throughout a song, but in slightly varying ways, is really compelling in lots of music and especially here. I wanted to repeat what Tamsin Wilson says this album is about. She says, Ruiner is about meeting your various inner selves and a promise to be better. And I think that also puts the lyrics in a slightly different context. These lyrics that she's singing are not necessarily about another person, but about herself. The other thing that's great about the song is how it builds into the final section where it's just all these sweeping guitars. It's very cathartic. This is the second to last song on the record, so kind of everything is building to this point. And Wilson is singing, and uh, there's both like strummed guitars and, and picked guitar going, going through it. Andrew, you caught some live music this week? I did. I caught some live music Saturday night. I went and saw Joe Pug at uh, my favorite neighborhood venue, Boot and Saddle. Who is our Joe Pug? Joe Pug is a man who is a guitarist and singer and harmonicist. Harmonica player is fine, yeah. He plays the harmonica. Uh, he's He's a folky, like country westerny folky musician he's a great dude like he almost feels like he's like a johnny cash impersonator or something you know like he like he feels like he's a it feels like he's in a movie he's but he's not the main character he's like a side character who's a musician and is like this country guy he's that like i don't i don't mean this to like detract from him because he's fucking great it's just it's just so funny how real he seems it was a really great show I, I have three things about his set that I want to mention. Well, the way the boot and saddle is set up, like you have to, I think the musicians like wait in the kitchen basement and then you have to like come up the stairs through the bar and then walk from the back of the venue area up to the stage. It's like the, the least <laughs> reasonable thing. I think when it's warm out, you can be outside, but like when it's not, you're just like in the basement and you have to walk through. But anyway, he got up on stage finally was like y'all are so philly before you see who it is trying to move through the crowd because <laughs> everyone's like <laughs> blocking him as he's like tapping him on the shoulder like no like i'm, the, I'm it's me i'm here to play uh... <laughs> he also did the incredible move of turning off the amp and s- turning off the mic and and like singing a song just from the stage i mean it's a small enough room that you can definitely do that and also but also it was clear that like he knew that people in the room knew the song and they were going to sing along to it and he was they were also going to shut the fuck up like and listen to it uh, which is uh, really excellent and similarly he did his encore i've talked about encores at boot and saddle before which again is like a function of the way the stage is set up usually people just like well we're just going to play one more song and this is our encore because there's no point in us like pushing through you guys and then pushing back so what he did was he just like started walking off the stage and then did the encore in the middle of the floor Again, with, like, no amplification or anything, just, like, chilling there and everyone standing around him. It was really cool. 
that's really good that's great stagemanship yes yes that's that's i think what i'm trying to say is that he really is like a consummate professional he knows what the fuck he is doing if i return with eyes half open don't ask me where i was i do my father's drugs So, of course, as always, there was an enormous amount of good music released this week. Andrew, anything that stood out to you? Like we said, I was really into all of Wilson's album. I think you should listen to the whole thing. Um, Agnes Obel put out a pretty cool album that's sort of weird and cool. I really like the song uh, Can't Be. I almost picked that one. That was the other. That was the fourth song that was still on my playlist before you picked Wilson. And then another one of my favorites, uh, Choir Boy, put out a song called uh, complainer which was a lot of fun and i really liked it so check them out they have a new album coming out i think at some point so i'll probably pick something from there when it actually comes out we opted out of doing a grimes cast this week although grimes released her new record miss anthropocene she did it is quite good although she has released most of those songs already as singles which uh is a little disappointing to me actually it would have been fun to hear some of this music for the first time on her record rather than in a really drawn out release Similarly, Moses Sumney released part one of his record, Grey. Again, most of those songs have been released as singles, although there are a couple new tracks that are really excellent. But it was not it was not eligible for this. I want to make that clear. True. Because I picked Polly from it uh, in December. Yes, you may hear some Moses Sumney when part two comes out of Grey, or he releases a whole bunch of other singles um, sometime in May. The Strokes put out a song that was good. I just want to say that after we sort of trashed them last week. Yeah, we did trash them this, last week, and the song from this week is called Bad Decisions. Bad Decisions, right. I was just going to say that. Uh, is good. Yes, it's more classic strokes, but still is like not stale. Yeah, I liked it. That is all for our show this week. You should follow us on Twitter at Fresh Press Pod. We have a playlist of this music on Spotify, which you can find in our show notes. And share the show with a friend, someone who wants to hear some more music, wants to get introduced to such musics as Thundercat, which should be everyone. If you know someone in your life who doesn't know Thundercat, probably it's more important to share Thundercat's music with them than to share this podcast but if you share this podcast with them it's like a teach amanda fish kind of situation where they can just listen to the podcast and then you don't have to be the middleman every time we talk about thundercat or like geniuses on that note uh i'm gabe i'm andrew and we'll see you next week